The Sermon on the Mount. Though it was delivered on the side of a hill one day in Israel, its power, truth, and simplicity have pierced through every century since. His divinely inspired words are not only timeless, they are timely for us. We hope you will join us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to fall. Praise God for some more rain. Glad you're here. Uh, if you are a covenant partner and you are just, you're all in and you're committed to the mission of what Jesus is doing through this church, I am so glad you're here. I love you deeply. Uh, if you're a visitor, maybe you've just kind of been around the church a little while and you're uh, curious about who we are, what's going on. Praise God. I'm super glad that you're here as well. Uh, and if you're a skeptic, I've run into a handful of people just like, I just hear, I, I don't know that I believe in God. I don't know that I believe the Bible's true. I don't know what I think about uh, organized religion. Uh, praise God for, for you being here as well. I firmly believe that God has the just the ability to speak to each one of us no matter where we're at, all across that spectrum. So uh, if you would this morning allow me to pray over us uh, as we walk into God's Word, something I think that is very uh, timely for us as a church. So let me invite you to bow your head, to close your eyes, let me pray over us. Holy Spirit, I, I ask you this morning that you might speak through me, uh, God, as we open up your word and stand upon uh, your authority and your goodness in your word, would your spirit make that uh, word applicable uh, to each one of us, God, wherever we're at. If we've been walking with Jesus for 50 years or just really confused about life and, and what the best pathway forward is for us, I pray uh, that you might divinely and miraculously uh, speak to each one of us. Again, I believe that no one is here by accident, and so I pray that you would help us to see the purpose uh, that you have brought us to this gathering this day for, and we pray that that would terminate on the glory of Christ and all of God's people. Said again, Amen, amen, amen. Let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you've been around for a few weeks, you know that we are walking through the entire sermon of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus preaching at the very beginning, very early on in his ministry. And we got to start off just an unbelievable way to start off the sermon. Jesus begins with just pronouncements of blessings. He's talking to disciples. He's not talking to everyone, not talking to the masses. Uh, he's talking to people that have heard the gospel. They know enough about them as sinners and Jesus as Savior, to embrace Him as a Savior, and they are actively following Him. We call them Christians probably most of the time now, but in the first century and the New Testament, mainly they're called disciples. So Jesus is speaking to disciples, and He just pronounces just a long list of blessings, which I love, I am grateful for, and He shifts gears now, uh, and He's going to um, uh, give us a, a little bit something else for the next few weeks. Uh, we are here at Redeemer, we, I've said this for now seven and a half years, we are a what? What are we? Gospel-centered, missional, family. Three huge components. We kind of see them as cogs in a wheel. When all three of these gears are turning, we're healthy. We're gospel-centered. That means we are about Jesus. Jesus and His person, uh, who He is and His work, and what He has done is at the center of our identity, our activity. Everything that we are and we do is centered around Jesus. We're gospel-centered, okay? Uh, and uh, a lot of what the Beatitudes are, they're, they're, they're just blessings over people who have embraced the gospel. And, but he, he shifts gears and 
what we're looking at today has a little bit more of a missional flavor. Uh, so we're gospel-centered, but we're also missional means uh, every single Christian has a role to play and a job to do in the mission of Jesus. Like there's nobody that should embrace the gospel and then just sit on the sidelines and watch other people kind of get in the game and do the thing uh, because we, we have been not just invited and embraced into the family of God, but we've been inserted into the mission of God. I totally agree with Charles Spurgeon, uh, the British preacher who said there's only really two types of Christians, missionaries and imposters, not meaning every Christian needs to move to China or Afghanistan or wherever, but he, he is saying that every single Christian should see themselves in a certain sense as a missionary with a mission to accomplish for the glory of Christ in the world. Amen? A little harder, Amen? Because that's what you're getting today, okay? I need you to like embrace mission because Jesus is about to lay it out for us. What he sees as the mission for his people, for his disciples. And then obviously we're a family, a gospel-centered missional family. This is not just uh, an event to come to. This is not a place where we want you to come sit next to strangers and just uh, learn information, but truly uh, know and be known as part of a family. So Jesus says to precisely to his disciples, his followers, this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. If you're there, give me the loudest ready you've ever given. I'll take it. Jesus says, you, who? You. If, if, if you've embraced the gospel, you're like, I, I, I followed Jesus. I'm not perfect, but by the grace of God, Jesus is going to get me there someday. I'm a work in progress, but I'm committed to Jesus. Uh, Jesus says to you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why, when Jesus saves someone, he, he, he forgives their sin, he adopts them into their family, secures their future with him, when he does that, when he calls somebody, so to speak, out of the world, like we, we were all born in darkness, born under sin, and he calls us out, saves us out. The big looming question is, why then does he turn around and send us back in? Why do Christians live on planet earth after being saved? That's kind of the big foundational question, um, that if we answer that, kind of the rest of this makes sense. And I want to turn to John chapter 17 and let Jesus answer that question uh, for us. Uh, on the timeline of Jesus' his ministry, Sermon on the Mount is the beginning, right? This is very early on in his ministry. What I'm about to read is John 17. This is Jesus praying at the very end, like the night he's betrayed and about to be crucified. Uh, and we've talked about this so many times over the years, what Jesus was praying for in the last few breaths that he had, that he knowingly had, it's, it's so telling about what Jesus loves and cares about and hopes, especially for his people. 
And so I want to read just a couple verses from the, the, the very heart of Jesus praying in John chapter 17 about why he has called us out yet left us in the world. Jesus says, John 17, verse 10 and 11, and I'll skip a few and go to 14 and 15. He says, all, he's speaking to God. He's praying to the Father. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine. Talking about Christians talking about his possession. He has now purchased a possession, a people for himself. All mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I, Jesus says, am glorified in them. Meaning there's some purpose behind Christians being called out and left in for us in that capacity to, to, to glorify Jesus. That's the reason he's left us here. I mean, he could have just like pulled us out, right? Some of you are like, That would have been awesome. You know, the moment you believe, boom, just rapture and you're gone and you don't have to deal with the fear and the frustration and the hurt and the betrayal and the sin. uh, And you think that would just be fantastic. And I agree, that would be fantastic. But he's left us here for a mission for a reason. I am glorified in them. So then the question is, well, how, how, how is Jesus glorified through us? He says, I am no longer in the world, okay? Because he was about to ascend, Jesus was removing his physical presence from the world and inserting it with his body being the church. And I am no longer in the world, but they, that's you, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that you, they may be one, even as we are one. Normally, when we bring up John 17, we talk about how, how important unity is in local churches to Jesus. He says, I want them to be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. Skip to verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, meaning he, he's, he's the great preacher of all preachers. He is the one who directly relayed the word of God to the people of God. That's what we're reading and preaching today. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The phrase that we've kind of put together, that this has been a phrase for probably centuries, is we're in the world, but not of the world. Are y'all with me? That's the purpose, like God's people, how do we bring glory to God? Well, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're we're relationally connected enough with people in the world that don't know Jesus, that they know us, that they know our lives. We share relationships and neighborhoods and jobs and friendships with them. We don't retreat and just once we become Christians, create a bunch of uh, convents and a bunch of, uh, what's the other one? Monasteries, and we just kind of retreat from the world and kind of have our little holy huddles. Jesus like, I don't want want that. That's not helpful. Like we're in the world, but we're not of the world because if we're in the world and of the world, we're just simply no help. We just kind of blend in with everybody else. We have the same value system as everyone else. We treat everything the same. And so there's the temptation sometimes to be in the world yet of the world, and that's not helpful. So what are we supposed to do? Be in the world. Just like don't remove them. I need them there. I need them there. I need them in the world, but they have to be distinctly different and unique. Okay, that's, the, that's the, the foundation or the backdrop for what Jesus says as he commands us to be salt and light. So let's back up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. I'll read this again. Just two big, uh, two big topics, two big ideas that are really, um, in a way, they're just two different uh, metaphors uh, for Jesus teaching us the exact same thing, salt and light. Everybody say it, salt and light. Here we go. You, Christian, 
are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Obviously, when Jesus is preaching this, they did not have refrigerators and freezers, right? So how would they preserve meat? They would take meat and add a a generous liberal amount of salt. And what salt would do is it was just mainly, and not just for meat, but for a lot of things, it was a preservative uh, to keep things from decaying uh, and to keep things fresh and useful. Uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot of different uses of salt for taste and for some other things, but uh, primarily, especially with this analogy, I I think what Jesus is getting at is salt is supposed to be a preservative but it can only do that if, if two things happen. One, if it's applied to the meat, if it's just in the shaker, it's no help to the meat that's rotting, right? And it has to be distinctly and chemically different. And if it is present yet different, then the salt goes on and it preserves. And Jesus takes that analogy, which would have been just like, I mean, he, he starts talking about salt and immediately everyone knows the, the depth of the metaphor that he's using. You are the salt of the earth. What is he saying? Part of Jesus' plan is for us to keep like a presence of, of goodness in the world and in the culture that keeps it from decaying in all the different ways that society can and is decaying and to preserve it and to provide some type of hope and life. That's what Jesus has designed us to do. But that only happens if we're what? In the world and not of the world. If we're just removed and you don't have any friends that are not Christians, just it, it's hard to accomplish what Jesus is asking us to do. And you know this to be true. I, I read a study not too long ago um, that for the most part, Christians that share the gospel uh, with, uh, with a friend or a coworker or a family member, they, they do so in the first four years after they're, they're converted to Christianity. Most of the time, it doesn't happen after that, this study said, because uh, we kind of look around and most of our friends uh, are all Christians. And so you have to work harder the longer you've been a a Christian to try to be like Jesus who said he came to seek and to save the lost, to try to have relationships with people that are very different from us. Why? Because we need to be in the world. Yet Jesus says not of the world. He says, if, 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 if salt has lost its saltiness, meaning if a Christian has lost his or her distinctiveness or difference, he's like, hey, they're just not good for the mission. They can't do anything. They can't do what I've left them there to do. What does that mean? When a Christian's life, let's say you're in the world, like I got, I got plenty of friends that are just far, far from God. But if your life and values look exactly like theirs, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, man, if you just, if, you, if it's hard for somebody to kind of look at the group and distinguish that, that your life, something is different, he's like, this is just not, not going to be real helpful. No longer good for anything except to be thrown out in trail. I mean, that's like a tough thing to say to people, right? But yet Jesus is so invested in his mission that he wants us to know the truth. Okay, so let me walk through a few things for just in in our culture. Where is this temptation for us to like be kind of the the negative example that Jesus is using, like in the world, but just kind of like the world, and so we're not really helpful. We're present, but we've lost our saltiness. Um, I'll just run through a handful of different things. Uh, Generosity. 
Uh, if somebody in your family or your workplace uh, needs something, and, and you know, if we're just kind of as close-handed or stingy as maybe the next person, uh, and you just kind of look across the spectrum, and there's no, uh, you know, when, when they get to us, there's no blip in generosity. That, that's probably a little confusing to people. Uh, if in generosity we're just the same, uh, if in Midland, if we're just as materialistic as as anyone else. And like we're just all in on image and we just, we're defining our, our life and our success by, by the good things that we have or how much money we make and there's no difference in uh, where we place our, our, our ultimate value and what makes us most excited. Probably a, a problem. Uh, conflict, uh, if we are no better at resolving conflict uh, than someone who has never met Jesus, um, we, we have a difficult time forgiving. If, if, if our ability to forgive is just the same as the, the person next to us that doesn't claim uh, to follow Jesus, uh, if we use our finances in all the same ways as everyone else, um, uh, if pornography has the same grasp on our hearts and our eyes and our life as everyone else, that's probably a fairly uh, confusing thing to uh, non-believers. Uh, speech, if we talk the same way, if we, if we gossip, if we slander, if whatever uh, the, 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 the harmful use of our, our tongue and our words can be, if that's just the same as everyone else, it's just like we've lost our saltiness. Grace, if we just don't have grace for people, like, that would probably be fairly confusing, I think, to a world that hears us preach grace all the time. Uh, if we struggle more uh, with forgiveness and bitterness or having patience with some, or especially, listen, uh, sex and gender and marriage, uh, if we have just kind of blended into the values of the culture, it's like we're no longer helpful as salt. Are you all with me? Like, if, if you disagree on, on sex, just like if it's only, like Bible says, just it's a, it's a good, godly thing for inside of the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Uh, marriage, the definition of marriage, homosexuality, gender, all of those things. Uh, if, uh, if we agree with Hollywood and social media, and CNN, and probably even Fox News, like every, if, if like we agree with, with, with just the, the main flow of the culture and disagree with 2,000 years of, of church history and the Bible, what would Jesus say? It's like, we just lost our salt. We can't help in, in, in some things that are causing some incredible decay. And listen, there's a reason why Christians kind of sometimes we shrink back from being salt. Why? Because the world doesn't like it, right? The one thing the world needs, the world hates. Are y'all with me? See, like the world would never define it this way, but what the world needs is a Christian who is in the world and not of the world and understands the precepts of the Bible and willing to be open and honest about them in a gracious way and yet they do not like it. It's like a two-year-old. I don't know if you've ever tried to withhold ice cream from a two-year-old, but it, it's challenging and that's like the one thing that they need from a parent. If you're going to be a parent, you're like, okay, well, you can have one scoop, but you can't have the whole half gallon. What are they like? I don't like you, <laughs> right? It's like, that's fine. I don't care if you like me. I'm your father. I'm trying to do what's best. Like sometimes the one thing you need to do is the one thing they don't want you to do. And so that's why sometimes it's difficult to be salty, to be light, because the world's just not a big fan. In fact, Jesus was so good at being salt and light, the world hated him and they murdered him, right? Like he, he, Jesus says, 
you are the salt of the earth. We exist to be very present and yet in a gracious way, very distinct and in, in godliness and holiness different. We're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Light. You are the light of the world. This was like the first time many of these people heard that concept. I mean, it is an Old Testament concept. The prophet Isaiah uh, tells uh, God's people, the the Jewish nation, the Israels, that God God will make you a light unto the Gentiles like they had heard that. But many of these people um, were were probably not really attuned to that. And definitely if there were Gentiles in the crowd. And so when Jesus looks at them, he's like... You're the light of the world. I mean, like we read ourselves into the story often, right? If I was there, I'd be like, uh, <laughs> who? Like, don't, what? But like, if you're a Christian, Jesus, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Light and darkness is a very, very strong metaphor, not just then, but today. Almost always it represents good and evil, right? How can you recognize the good guy and the bad guy in the movies? You're like, well, the bad guy's the one wearing a black trench coat. Like, it's not that hard. The guy wearing the white robe, like, that's the good guy. Like, light and dark are always used to kind of represent uh, good and bad, right and wrong, fear. Like, you know, kids are scared of the dark. Not many kids are scared of the light because darkness represents fear. It represents the unknown. Uh, And so Jesus is saying, you're the light of the world to give hope, to give uh, direction, to give um, a a pathway of, of goodness, to remove fear. You're the light of the world. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, John 8, 12, Jesus makes one of this just incredible I am statements, and he says that I am the light of the world, and then he shares that with his people, saying you are the light of the world. Uh, I was... um Really blessed to have a little bit of time off last weekend, uh, so thank you for that, and thanks to Jonathan for preaching and Jordan for leading uh, worship. And I got to take my oldest son on his first elk hunt, which is kind of a rite of passage um, in the Hatch House. Like when you're kind of bumping up uh, against puberty, it's like time to go elk hunting and talk about some uh, man things in a tent that smells really bad after five days of no showers. Uh, so some of you are like, I'm just, I don't, you're offended by the hunting thing. Uh, <laughs> No animals were harmed, right, in the making uh, of this analogy. You might, uh, might uh, be happy to know that. Uh, but we went nonetheless, and we got stuck kind of, uh, you know, about a mile and a half away from camp when it got dark, and so we had to make our way uh, through this uh, kind of blowdown area all the way back to camp in the dark, right? And so, uh, I, Judah, you know, he's, he's 12 and a half, and he had his full pack on and was, was doing great, and I'd put a headlamp in his pack, Now, what would you think if we're stumbling through the dark, he's tripping over trees, he's falling down, he's hurting himself, and he pulls out the the, the headlamp, and he puts it on his head, and he turns it on, and then he puts a hoodie or a beanie up over the headlamp and just keeps walking and stumbling. You'd be like, God, 
What a homeschooler, right? You'd be like, I don't know. Maybe you put him back in public school. You'd be like, that's just, like, yeah, you got the light, yeah, it's on, but you're covered it up, it's not real helpful. Like, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, you're the light of the world. And if it's hidden, it's not good for anything, right? Are, you, are y'all with me? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. You were designed by Jesus to shine as a light in a dark place. Now, you need to know. Jesus said, I mean, because that, that sounds great, right? Like, I like shining. I like bright, shiny things. We don't like darkness. Uh, he also says, oh, by the way, the darkness hates the light. Still, 2,000 years later in Midland, Texas, darkness hates the light. You're the light of the world. What's the back half of that? Be prepared to be hated for that just like Jesus was. You're the light of the world. We were designed to shine. Two questions um, that I want to ask. Number one, how if, if Jesus says we're the light of the world designed to shine like a city on a hill, like a lamp on a stand... Question one, how are we supposed to shine? Very practically, how are we supposed to accomplish and to do what Jesus is asking us to do? And then number two, what should happen when we do? Okay, those two questions. How are we supposed to shine and what should happen when we do? First one, how are we supposed to shine? Very, very simple. It's right there in the text. Uh, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Everybody say good works. We say it again, good works. I want to explain a little bit of good works because there's like a, a right pathway that, that Jesus sees and Christians should use good works. And there's kind of like two ways that we can fall off of this in error on, on either side. It's so like think about a horse, you're riding a horse. You can fall off one side or the other or mule or ostrich. You insert whatever animal you want to be riding. This morning, I'm riding a horse. One way we can fall off of the horse when it has to do with good works is by like thinking so much of good works that think like that, that's kind of part of salvation, and to think, well, I can kind of contribute and help Jesus. Like he did a lot of good stuff, but uh, he also needs my help a little bit, and so I'm saved. Yeah, kind of by grace, kind of by faith, but also a little bit of my good works thrown in. Like, like that's just an abomination. We know that. Like like th- that's not that, that's the the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done absolutely everything. I mean, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished, not good luck, right? Like, it is finished, absolutely, 100%, it is finished, and to try to toss in a little bit of our good works or claim even 1% of credit, it, it diminishes the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done. So, like, the, like to try to think that we're saved because we've done anything, to fall off this way. But here's what a lot of people, especially kind of in our uh, theological circle, sometimes we'll fall off the other side. And we like, we, we totally get that we're saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done. And we're so scared of like kind of falling off this side and like talking about good works. We're so scared that it might kind of uh, get into our theology of how we're saved that we're just like, no, no good works. <laughs> just good theology, right? You need to be really smart. You need to have all the right answers. Doesn't matter like the good works. And Jesus's little brother, who was named James, who writes the book of James, who I think it's probably safe to say knew the gospel pretty well. 
he goes so far as to say, like, if you claim to be a Christian, claim to be saved by grace, but there's no good works in your life, like, I just don't know that you're actually a Christian. Like, faith without works, James says, is dead. So there's a way we can fall off and just, like, not, not have any good works. And so what, like, the, 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 the godly, healthy understanding is that we're saved by grace, complete, pure, perfect, unadulterated grace. Jesus just hands it to us free of charge, and and it's so powerful that it changes us, and it changes how we live and what we do, and then we have lives full of good works because we're grateful for the gospel. Y'all with me? We're not trying to earn anything. We already possess everything. That's what Jesus is saying, right? You know, and and, um, I don't think anybody was more like gospel of grace, obviously Jesus was and Paul was, but like post-Bible than Martin Luther, and yet uh, Luther says like, nobody in the world is saved by works, and nobody's saved without them. (laughs) Like we're not saved by them, but they they come with the package deal. And he says, listen, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. That's what Jesus is getting at. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, Jesus, they may see your good works. It, it, Jesus expects our lives to be full of good works that don't point to us but point to him. Consider this, Sermon on the Mount, which is going to take up this fall for us. If, if you begin, I mean, it's like three chapters. It's, it's long. It's a lot. It covers a lot of topics. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not mention one thing to believe. I think it's presupposed that that was already out, like the gospel and what to believe was already out there because these people had believed it, right? So they're, they're disciples, they're, they're followers. They had got the information, but the whole sermon is just about what to do and how to live our lives. And if you fast forward three centuries uh, to kind of the first mantra of the Christian faith and Nicene Creed, 100% of that is about what to believe and not what to do. Both are unbelievably important. In fact, belief has to come first. Faith comes first, but it has to be accompanied by good works. Jesus says, like, how are we supposed to be in the world, not of the world, so that we bring glory to God? By letting your light so shine before men that others see it, and you give glory glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, how are we supposed to shine? By, by having lives that are full of good works, that are visible to people around us, to non-Christians. Now, what is that supposed to do? What should happen when our lives are full of good works? And it's right there in the text again. That it, what should happen is our good works cause other people to give glory to who? That's like the biggest softball lob over the plate I've ever given you. Jesus, right? To give glory to God, not to us. So I want to just run through a couple of just examples of what that can look like very practically. Like if very practically, like I'm in, love Jesus, I want to be salt, I want to be light, I want people to see my life and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I mean, you need to know like when Jesus talks about good works, there's not just like you know, one or two or three things he's talking about, I think the opportunities for good works are just absolutely unlimited. I mean, uh, unbelievably unlimited about the ways we can be uh, even creative in thinking through, how can I have good works that point people to Jesus? Uh, Just a couple very, very specific ones. Uh, If someone has a need around you, 
physical need, financial need, do what you can to meet the need. I mean, that's a very basic work. Maybe they need a meal. Maybe they need a babysitter. Maybe they need a, 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 a fence fixed. Maybe they need their yard mowed. Uh, and then, you know, when the opportunity comes up, why are you doing this? Like, don't say, because I'm a good person, you know, because I'm, I'm awesome, right? Because, because Jesus has served me, and so therefore I want to serve you, right? If a financial need comes up, what should we do? Try our best to be open-handed and generous. Why? We don't want people walking away from that thinking, what an awesome person. Gosh, they are so generous. Now, like if they walk away giving glory to us, we can all agree we've done something wrong, right? But if the if generous, he's like, why in the world? Because God's been very, very generous to me, and so therefore it's easy for me to pay that forward uh, forgiveness uh, when you need to forgive someone that has hurt you or sinned against you, and it might seem illogical to someone, and you say, well, it is a little bit illogical, but that's how God has treated me. You see how the good works can cast glory onto, onto God, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, uh, serving needs, whatever. You kind of like fill in, fill in the blank with your own opportunity and your own specific thing, but we have like an opportunity to live lives full of good works, and as we do, point people to Jesus so that you may be full of good works, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. On this elk hunt that was um, successful on every realm except bringing any meat home for the freezer, there was a full moon, okay, this, which was not a good, it's a, it's a fun thing because I, uh, I thought it was like hard to sleep in the tent because it was so bright, just like right through my tent, just the, this big old beam of light shining in my face. Uh, we got up one night uh, and walked out. It's like, man, we could be elk hunting right now. It's midnight. And that's a felony, so I don't recommend that. I'm not saying we did, but I was like, it, it was so bright, we could be out hunting right now, which is not a good thing if you're hunting because uh, during a full moon, all the animals are just going, you know, full on at night and then they're in bed before it gets light, so they're hard to find, all right? But I'm sitting there in the mountains in New Mexico, 11,000 feet, looking at the moon, thinking, man, that thing puts off a fair bit of light. And I was thinking, because I, I knew this text was coming up, I'm like, that, that, the, the moon, it doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce any light. All it does is what? Reflects. Like, all it does is reflect, and yet it is incredibly bright that I can illegally, if I wanted to, elk hunt at night. Like, Christians, we don't generate any light. This is an important distinction because anything that we get to do in the world in line with what Jesus has asked us to do is a reflection of Jesus. Jesus is the sun. Write this down, okay? Two things. Elk hunting bad in the full moon, Jesus is the sun, right? Jesus is the one that produces the goodness and the clarity and the, and the light and the, like all of the things, and we're the little moons that just kind of get to reflect that to the world. So yeah, Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, but that's only because John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The world is a dark place. There's fear, there's confusion, there's evil, there's wickedness, and Jesus has invaded it as the light of the world. And he's kind of lit our candles and pushed us out into the world and left us here not to try to generate something that we don't have, but to reflect the light of Christ, his goodness, his commands, his grace, his, his mercy. 
so that as we do, other people can see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm, I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you are the light of the world that you have shown in our hearts to illuminate our need for Christ, to cast away all fear, God, to give us the right path forward. Jesus, you are the ultimate light of the world. And what an incredible honor and responsibility that you have given us to be a light of the world as well. God, I pray that you would help us to be in the world, uh, to have just friendships with people that are very different from us and don't love Jesus and got some questions. God, I pray that you would help us to be, be, be purposeful in seeking relationships with people that need hope and they need the gospel. And as we do, I pray that you might keep us distinctly different so that we are helpful to the culture and the world around us. God, keep us salty. Help us to be light no matter the cost. And I pray that as, as your church disperses throughout this community this week, that people would just recognize some things in us and we would be very, very quick to point them to Christ in us, not anything in and of ourselves. Would you get a lot of glory? from our lives. It's what you've designed us for. And I pray this message through your spirit would meet each one of us wherever we are at on our journey. God, even this morning, give someone the faith to believe that you died for them and you are powerful enough to save them, to change them, to forgive them. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.